Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the State of America podcast. I am one of your hosts, Ian Rice, and with me, as always, Mr. David Hudson. David, how are you, sir? Well, Ian, how about yourself? Doing very well, very well. The very exciting episode. We've been holding off on this one for a long time, and the day is finally here. We are going to be talking about one of the big three, as they say, the Amorica record. I mean, I don't know anybody that has this any lower than fourth or third in their pecking order of their favorite crows albums it is but held he, in high he, regard yeah i mean I, i've said it before i think southern harmony is their best album this is their best recorded album and three snakes is their best songwriting it's a razor thin margin in my mind southern harmony is my favorite and i go back and forth between band three snakes and amorica for number two and it just depends on the, the mood i'm in i think um, a lot of the hardcore old school type fans kind of rotate around those three or four albums as the uh, as the top, you know. But uh, this one does have a lot of very special songs on it, a lot of songs that are held in high regard by the fan base. And we're going to be breaking it down track by track like we normally do, but we do have two very special guests joining us for this episode. Let's introduce them, shall we? Our first guest has uh, joined us on the show before. He's the architect of the excellent Buffalo Junior, who had a fantastic record out recently called Indigo Groove, featuring none other than Mark Ford, on guitar please welcome back mr rick stout rick how you doing all right thanks a lot for having me i appreciate it good to see you and hear you guys yes you as well sir and then our second guest needs no introduction around these parts ladies and gentlemen the man the myth the absolute legend mr steve gleason steve how are you buddy gentlemen how are we with this evening oh we're good we're good we're excited to be talking about this record and i i, I get the feeling you guys are as well i'm excited to be here with both rick and you two guys to discuss this uh monumental record in uh in the catalog and and what it means for the time and all those all those things i mean i guess before we get into the track by track kind of thing you know it's important to talk about where this record kind of falls in the black crows canon and you know what what directly preceded it this this was preceded by a record that you know most of the the longtime fans know and it was officially released on the lost crows that's the the toll record which was very much a chris record and as much as he was the producer, he kind of was running the show on that. And then they scrapped that record, and it the the main components of it would then become Amorica. Uh, you know, I'm kind of abbreviating this a lot, the whole story. But and then Amorica re- really is much more of a Rich Robinson record. It's almost like he took control of things a little bit and became much more of a a guitar record, for lack of a better uh, term. I mean, it's really uh, cool that we've got a second bite at the apple with these songs, with the you know, with the tall recordings after they came out. I um, I I, I love hearing uh, the initial songs and the ideas, and then and then seeing where they went when they were re-recorded, and you know, definitely went to a went to a harder a harder edge. I I think on this record that. Rich and Mark are really doing the um, the Keith Richards and Mick Taylor thing, where they are just locked in complimentary guitar playing a lot. For the record, this is this is my favorite of the studio albums. I did reach out to 
to Mr. Rich Robinson and I asked him a couple questions about the album and um, some of the information he he was gracious enough to share with me was that during the recording of this album, they um, they had just gotten those uh, Mark Sampson matchless um, boutique amps, uh, which they were which they played the hell out of. They had uh, a pair of silver Jubilees uh, Marshall amps and a Fender Bassman. And uh, Rich particularly remembered using the uh, his Rosewood Telly on Gone. Uh, he used the White Falcon a lot, and his Red 335 is all over this album. And not just him, but there's lots of photos of Mark with yep. it. Uh, so that's kind of some of the some of the gear that was uh, that was used on this album. No, it's fantastic, and that's very you know it's it's interesting to note because you know you, you as a fan seeing them live, you see these guitars that you're mentioning you know over the years, and it's it's interesting to know which ones are actually kind of used on the in the recording process and you're absolutely right it is kind of like that uh keith and mick taylor kind of vibe to it and it's their most cleanly recorded record whereas you know, shake your money maker was a studio record but it's a band that's very green and you can kind of hear that that greenness to them and then southern harmony is a complete 180 from that because it's you know recorded in about eight days i think yeah and uh you know it's very raw and you know a lot of first takes with minimal overdubs and then you get to Amorica, which is a studio record but it doesn't necessarily feel like a studio record you know well, what I mean? great great studio and a great producer and i think you really hear it on the you know you you, you hear you hear you hear the sound city and and, and the production on it really comes through well, and, and and not to not mention this our buddy eric bobo played a great role in this because there is so much ear candy on this album Absolutely. it's such a it's such a headphones album and just the little things that not little things, but the touches that that he added to it uh, really stand out because they that funky really, Latin vibe, you know. Yeah, you know, and and with talking with him on the podcast and off the podcast, man, he is really proud of this and really proud of this record. You know, he said he stood had to step out of his comfort zone. Yeah, and he did. And he, he smacked did. it out of the park. And um, you 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 realize what a good musician he is. I mean you know, Cypress Hill and Beastie Boys and, and the Crows. That's quite the thing, but there's, there's so much, so many little things stick out to me on this album with his playing, you know, it's just, it's like a, it's like a jambalaya or a gumbo or whatever you want to call it. You got all these ingredients and, and sometimes you take one of them out. It doesn't taste the same, but you throw him in there and it just, it works. I mean, I, I'm assuming it was Chris's idea to bring him in. If, he, if that was his idea, it's brilliant. Funny so. thing about this record is if you, if you think about the time, this record isn't received well, it isn't, it, it's a, it's a, it's a dud for the, for the record company. You're talking about them releasing Southern harmony. You know, they, they sell 5 million or 6 million. I kind of forget the number with uh shake your money maker. They open number one with Southern Harmony and sell three million, and this sells what five hundred thousand? Yeah, yeah. It's in I like mean, a total dud. Uh, and the album cover didn't you. help that. No, the album cover, well, which was unfortunately, didn't help that. I'm not sure that the, but that was the the big problem. And I'm sure we're going to discuss this as we go. But at the same time, I think you have a lot of people that are are listening and expecting, you know. A remedy or or and you know that kind of vibe and that's not on this record at all none of those steve it doesn't sound it is like from a, a 
a rhythmic standpoint, like it's almost like a completely different band. And I know Rick, you said this is like the the Mark and and Rich kind of thing. Uh, and listen to it again tonight. I was like, you know, we can find them and they're on it. But like, I really feel like this album belongs mostly to Johnny, Steve, and and Eddie and Chris. Like, I, I find it hard to find Rich as anything more than a harmonic support in a lot of these songs. And it's great. And the songwriting's great. And we're going to discuss this, but I feel like this album's such a departure from these big, huge guitar based songs that, that everybody loves. You know what I mean? These are like really mature, dark, dark songs. And that's, I that's thought it was a perfect ones. next step after Southern harmony. Cause at the time, that's all that we knew. Yeah, I agree with you. I just think it's not the most accessible album for your average fan. That's kind of mm. what I'm getting at inarticulately, obviously. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but you know, when this, uh, when the debut happened, uh, I think it was Halloween or the night before Halloween or whenever they put it on the radio and had the big debut and they started going through the tunes. I was like, okay, where's the, where's the, where's the big rock? Where's, where's my morning song? You know, where's the, you know, that kind well, of, Well, it's not a singles album. That's for sure. Hmm. Absolutely. It's just, I feel like it's just such a. That's probably why it's so great to to the fans. You know what I mean? Sure. I'm not saying, look, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time with this record too. <laughs> I love this record. I'm just suggesting that it's so unlike all the other records, the, all the other, the two records before it, you know, that while they gained so many more hardcore fans, they lost a huge amount of, you know, everyday fans that thought they disappeared, you know, with this record. I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. I think it has uh, good and bad points to that, you know. To But to speak to a point that you made, Steve, yes, all of those things that you mentioned, all the members that you feel are key in this, I agree with that. But I also feel at the heart of this record at all times is a base that that Rich sets up underneath every one of these songs. I mean, some of the some of the stuff like uh, Curse Diamond and and the things he's playing on those, that's the foundation for the song is so fantastic and so different than what he had done up until that point. I, I think he's almost like an unsung hero of this record. Well, that's what I'm saying. All of it is his, I don't see him as like the guy who's, who's chunking out the, the stingy riff mm. or chunk, that's what I'm saying is it's like, this isn't the guy who's chunking out hotel illness right? or that badass riff from, from black moon creeping. This record isn't like that. It's just not, it's very different. And what he does harmonically is just wonderful on this record, but it's it's a record that really celebrates a lot of different things and brings in so as you said so many different instruments and so many different styles that you know hey let's go through it and argue about it that's that's what we're here for right <laughs> all right well let's get to it then let's uh, let's get into the track listing here I mean the album opens up with what is arguably one of the best album openers of all time and that's across any album not just limited to the Black Crows catalog, and that is Gone.
Uh, David, what do you think of this one? I agree with everything you just said. I go back and forth between it and Sting Me and <laughs> and Under a Mountain as you know as my favorite opening songs. And it's one of those things like the albums. It just depends on the day. I can make a case for Under a Mountain. I love Sting Me. I love this one. But it's one of the things we discussed with Eric Bobo when he was on here. You have Shake Your Money Maker, huge. Southern Harmony, huge. And you put on the next record, and the first thing you hear is Eric Bobo. It's mm-hmm. not another. And, and he takes some pride in that. I have always thought this is some of Chris's best lyrics. I think he's his voice is in peak form on this. Now, I'm not a musician like you guys, but to me, as a non-musician, the song sounds like it may be fairly hard to play from a percussion standpoint. But now, I, I could be wrong on that, but Rich's opening lines in that and that that guitar strumming that he keeps through the whole thing, it's just, it's amazing. And then Mark comes in with the solo, kind of like Gleason said, if you're the average fan and you throw this on, like you said, it doesn't sound like anything else that they do, but to me, some of Chris's best singing and the the lyrics are, are top shelf. The lyrics on this album are amazing. Just go ahead and get that out of the way. But one of the best album openers of all time, regardless if it's the Crows or the Stones or whoever, I agree with you. I I, I had in my notes prepared for this uh, similarly that I thought lyrically this was one of the one of the top albums. Um, period. You know, uh, across all of the the greats. I think I think this opener is is fantastic, uh, and it's interesting because openers like this informed my choices of openers on albums that I've put out. I think it was a real lesson as far as you know what what you should expect from a good opener to kind of set the tone for a great fucking album. Yeah, absolutely. I'm absolutely in agreement with that statement, Steve. Where are you at on this one? So again, I wrote down that the, this is maybe the best intro ever on a on a record. You know, it's, it's certainly a slow burn. Like I, I love, as you were describing, David, that the staccato mute notes that Rich is playing here. It takes a full thirty seconds for the drums to kick in. A full thirty seconds. Staccato mutes with uh, <laughs> reverence to our friend Donchus. Anyways, uh, the announcement here from Chris that the uh, the landscape of Amorica is full of dead air here is kind of meaningful at the beginning of the record. You know, the bass finally kicks in at, at a minute 10. So it takes a minute and 10 for this song to get going. And it's not like this is shine on you crazy diamond. This is a pretty upbeat tune. Yes. You know, I can't think of another song like this outside of maybe fat man in the bathtub, but it doesn't even have that vibe. It's not that happy. I, I love uh, the guitar interplay from like 115 to 124. And for me, that kind of, you know, sonic tapestry that those two weave is kind of what informs the black crows for me. And like this song, the chorus is just so, so different that bomb, 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 you know, that's as dissonant as you get. It's a, if you're a guitar theory nerd or a music theory nerd, it's a six and a seven. Uh, name me a chorus. That's a six and a seven. Rick, do you know any that you can think of? Uh, I, I really don't. It's, now that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that. It's it's a really really dissonant chorus that doesn't set up for your average fan. It's it's great. I want to know who Chris is speaking to here when push and pull on me and fingernails full of fur. You know who when he says it doesn't hurt. Who who is he going back and forth with here? I think that the 
toy piano breakdown is cool. I don't think they could figure out how to get out of the solo. I think throwing that in is cool. Uh, I think they have trouble with it live, personally. I don't like that when they do that live. Uh, and the solo, uh, Mark's solo in the the middle of it is so different than the, the the runs at the end of the first verse. Plus, under that solo, Johnny is killing with the 16th groove. It's so good. This song's so good. It really, really is. It's the big guitar song on the record. And the rest of the record is like very, very mid-tempo. Very mid-tempo and slow, which is fine. It's great, but it doesn't sound like, for me, any of the other, the other songs on the record. I, I love Gone. Maybe my favorite. My, definitely my favorite opener in concert. Now, see, Steve, you brought up the uh, how they handle that, as you described, the toy piano section live. Yeah. And I, I feel like that that's like a signature thing live is when because the way they do it live is they everybody else drops out and it's just ed and i always feel like that that became one of those things in concert that people anticipate you know like the the longtime fans and say that's one of those you know inside things for the longtime people and that's why i always kind of like that i anticipate steve gorman's fat ass roll back into the groove of the song yeah holy shit it's amazing and you know gorman is Steve, steve is really great I mean, he's always great, obviously, but I, I I really thought that there are a lot of moments on this song where Steve just is just like absolutely killing it. And I, I agree with that too, Rick, because I feel like Amorica is when Steve's style became fully realized. Mm-hmm. Not that it's doesn't service the songs well, but on Shake Your Moneymaker, he sounded very, a lot stiffer. Absolutely. When you get to, when you get to Southern Harmony and they'd been on tour for you know that length of time yep he had a much more fluidity to it but here is like where everything kind of comes into one and and really he carries on his style moving forward after this it's just uh he comes into his own and uh, you really you really could have called this album band to be mm. honest with you yeah because there there is just every band member gets a time to shine on this you know obviously descending and she gave good sunflower i mean those are possibly two of the most quintessential Ed songs. And then Chris just really shines with his lyrics. And like Rick was saying, Rich paints this kind of tapestry and everybody else is playing in and out of it. I had, I had put, I had jotted this down that uh, for on this album that, you know, the the bands in full swing and each member is really comfortable with their place in the band. And the band was clearly comfortable being an even greater sum of its parts. And I think that's exactly what, America is for me yeah that's that's actually sums the album up pretty well but the next track up in the order is actually the first single from the record and i i distinctly remember it being the first song i heard from it and that is a conspiracy
Now this track, to me, odd choice for a first single. I don't think it's very representative of the record. That being said, lyrically, I think it's kind of cool. Uh, it's kind of addressing to me where this album was going and where they were going. They were kind of going against the mainstream and and you know all the things they'd experienced up to this point and not wanting to be a corporate entity and and wanting to be their own thing. And it, I mean, that that mindset has cost them over the years, but it's also gained them a really loyal fan base, I think. And uh, this is kind of like the beginning of that mentality for me. And I just think the, uh, the guitars are really, really gritty on this track. I don't know. What do you think, Steve? Well, the first thing I wrote, I wrote down was why, why release this as the first single, Mm. this makes no sense to me. Right. You know, as opposed to what you just said, 1994, I wondered where the guitars were on this track. You know, I feel like this track is a whole for me. This track is all Ed's organ swells and, you know, his interplay with Johnny and the bridge, like all that. I think the chorus is is as catchy as almost anything they've ever written, you know, be my conspiracy and and the what the the um chromatic walks down. I, I think that's that's beautiful but the whole song is like the chorus for me that the the chord progression in the verse is is pretty pretty common you know it's a very common chord progression but i uh i definitely don't i mean they they play a little behind but there's no real guitar solo in the song i think it's fairly i hate to use the word pedestrian but for me it's kind of a pedestrian song for them it has moments that i really like but i I don't know what they were thinking releasing this song like I would have released Gone for sure, and maybe if it was a time thing. I would have cut the congas out of it. I'm shocked that they didn't do that. Or you know, I you had could be definitely onto something there with the time, Steve. That that you know I could see that being a discussion, um, particularly like a record company discussion. Yeah, yeah, definitely. What do you think, David? It's not my favorite on the album. That's for sure. Uh, I do love the verses. I think it's got a very cool funk groove to it that uh i think chris should should explore a little bit more i wonder if one of the reasons they released it is it is a heavier song and you know this is what 94 you still had you know Soundgarden and and those kind of bands ruling the charts and that's kind of what they're up against from um a mainstream music scenario but there are aspects of i really like i mean that that chorus you know don't forget me that's just man it the melody on that is so good but compared to the other songs on that this album it's one of my uh least favorite ones i still like it i still think it's a good song but i i agree with you guys i wouldn't have i tell you what i would have released especially if it i can't remember what time of the year did this come out november november oh i was thinking if this came out in the spring right before my birthday (laughs) <laughs> if this came out in the spring, I would say, dude, she gave good sunflower. It could be kind of a feel good summertime hit. Yeah. I, this wouldn't have been the first one I went with. I I'm in, in agreement with you guys. It's gotta be gone. I, um, I, I, I did, I did note that I, I really thought that these are some, you know, touching personal lyrics that we're getting here from Chris. Just a quick aside, it came out a couple of days before my birthday, and I remember driving around with the disc, going to my various friend's house, and we we literally, I went to my friend Lance's house, and I feel terrible about this in, in, in maturity and retrospect, 
we played this album over and over so loudly that they were they were there three days they didn't make it to their fifth day of the landlord uh his his girlfriend at the time later his wife never ever ever forgave me for it and she shouldn't have that brings us to a track that you know we had spoken about eric bobo uh he kind of really shines on this one and that's this was i believe the second single from the record and that's high head blues David, what's your take on this one? One of my favorite songs on the album. I love hearing it live. It's uh, the, to me, it's always been one that can kind of pick the crowd up. Chris clearly enjoys singing it. And I'm like you, the little extra stuff that Eric Bobo threw in there is, is just all the ear candy. Now, am I off base on this? Did, Chris write the riff on like an acoustic guitar or something like that. Am, am I a uh, a guest that we've had on? I do not recall who it was did mention that, and uh, yeah, and uh, that's actually one of the few times you, you you hear Mark playing the the main riff kind of thing. You know, usually he's uh, he's there for uh, he's a color man, he's coloration, you know, but uh, he's kind of playing that main riff that that Chris wrote. This is one of my favorite songs on the album. At the time, I thought it was. A really departure for them you know the opening the the percussion we, we've talked about bobo's percussion the the mixing of the percussion is just killer on this album and this is a fine example of that absolutely i mean it's a it's a very very well recorded album all around but you're absolutely right the uh, the percussion does really shine through and it doesn't get lost in the shuffle now where they mixed it is just perfect if i had to guess this is probably one of the songs Eric was most proud of on this one. I would say well, so. I, I, agree, I agree with Rick. This was like completely out of left field at the time. The first time I heard it, I was like, are they trying to be a retro? Is that what's going on? And now it's just in my head. I think they just listened to a lot of Sly Stone. And, you know, Chris was yeah. fooling around on a guitar and just came up with that little seven, six, with that, with that, sorry, music nerd shit. Anyways, <laughs> with, uh, with that little that little walk down, you know, where staccatos, but we'll forgive him on for that. It's you know, it's it's really cool. And I did definitely think the chorus is is rich. It's straight nasty. That guitar is straight up nasty. But yeah, the 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 percussive nature of the song 
and the percussive nature of the 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 keyboards and the interplay between the two kind of make the whole tune you know it's really gorman gorman's killing here and you know the interplay between him and bobo and 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 ed really makes this song you know and, and chris weaving all those those lyrics in and out like this is the top of chris's lyric game as much as i love perfume and valium and the girl from the pawn shop and and i love three snakes but god this is at the top of his range concerning metaphor and all that and being confessional i i wrote that in one of these that these lyrics are so confessional in my in my head and uh i feel like this song uh i love the the outro jam i love when they extend it live and really go for it and, and speed it up at the end of the 16th i i this is one of my favorite songs to hear them play live. And it's a song that they abandoned when Mark left the band. Oh, they abandoned a bunch of these songs. You know, I wrote this down in something like Luther could never play these songs. Well, for whatever reason, I'm not shitting on Luther. He's fine. But, but like, who was the guy that nailed these songs? How about none of them? Really? Paul Stacy, maybe. Well, you, I, I think again, like I said, um, the second bite of the apple, if you go back and you listen to the tall, you can hear the, you hear the evolution of a lot of the lead position, uh, lead lead work uh, on the Amorica recordings. Now, the next song up is decidedly heavy lyrically, and probably I would say one of the top, you know, fan favorites, and uh, that's "Cursed Diamond." So unzip my pride, baby. Open me up wide now, so I can show this to you. I love that. I love the line. I hate myself. Doesn't everybody hate themselves? I, I, I've, I've often, God, that that's just resonated me with so, so many times uh, throughout my life. When I first heard that, I really kind of like blew my, blew my hair back. I just love this song. Love it. Steve, what do you think? You know, these are all songs that we love now, but you know, they were so, and they're still dark, but they were so dark in 1994. So dark. This is a mature, dark song. And, you know, I wrote the same thing, Rick. You know, doesn't everybody hate themselves and, you know, open me up wide so I can show this to you? You know, these are really amazing, amazing lyrics. I, I love Chris's soaring vocal in the chorus 
where he's like, hold me, baby. You know, yeah. I think just supposing that with Mark's runs underneath it, I think is amazing. Now, this is one of the harder songs to play. I played all these songs except for P25 London. Gone. Gone's great, but it's not the most difficult song in the world to play. It's just, you know, it's fun, actually. It's super fun. This is a very serious song. And let me tell you that uh, Gorman is ridiculously good in this song. And the 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 thing that's happening under the solo is like amazing. What happens rhythmically, it's nuts and it's super hard to play. But like in this song, in my mind, Johnny and Steve are laying out the darkest of tapestries for them to to play over. I think Johnny's role in this is is always understated. And I've, I, it's not because I play bass. Well, it helps that I play bass, but. The point it does. Is, it helps it, your ear. Mm-hmm. It does help my ear, and I think Absolutely. his bass playing on this record is fucking astounding. It's it's insanely good, and I've seen so many people shit on Johnny on online. And I'm like, you, what the fuck is wrong with you? His his playing. By the way, the only one of these guys that went to music school, Johnny. You know, his playing is so fucking good on this. It's great on this song. Steve is a monster on this tune. I love this tune. I love the breakdown at the end. I love the sparseness. Like, this is their most mature song up until this point of their career. And maybe the most mature song that they've ever written. Up until this point, this has got to be the most personal lyrics we've heard from Chris. Mm. Totally. And, and, you know, who knows what's in his mind when he writes lyrics, but this seems to be the first song that I can remember as well that he's talking about himself. Um, Or at least it appears to be. Surprised nobody mentioned... This is like one of the classic Rich Robinson riffs on this. It's just, I love the sludginess of it. Uh, it really brings the heavy into it. I love the slide that Mark plays on it. And as powerful as this song is on the record, I think it's more powerful live. Mm. And it's it's one of those songs when Chris is really feeling it, that he goes for it. Uh, and it, it's, like you said, for most people, this is one of the more personal songs for them, for people that that like it. I don't know anybody that doesn't like it. And, you know, they've they've gone back to it over over the years and uh, the acoustic versions of it are great. It's it's one of those things that's interesting. It's kind of like um, how the song is so mellow. But then when Rich comes in, it's so almost shocking compared to how mellow it is at first. And then he comes in and, and fragile. It, it's very, yeah. very fragile and susceptible, you know, open lyrically. Uh, you know, he really, I thought he really, when you write lyrics, sometimes you're afraid that maybe you're getting, you're sharing too much, you know, um, you're vulnerable when you write lyrics like this. He just went for it. That's right. The end of this also, like to, to juxtapose that, uh, the fragility of the ending where pretty much everybody drops out except for Johnny and Mark and. Mark's playing that slide and Johnny's mm-hmm. kind of following him along uh, the the melody line. Good Lord, is that nice? It's beautiful, dark and very minor chordy, beautiful. What a, what a, I mean, this is the kind of thing the Allman brothers would be proud of in like 1971. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good you point. Yep. It's just what it feels like to me. It feels like that, like, you know, when you listen to Idlewild South and you get to like, don't keep me wondering and songs like that. It's got that kind of that this whole album has that kind of feel. It's not exactly like that, but it has that kind of like we're in the shit, you know? And yeah, like, it's, it's like that with a, with a heavy dose of, you know, 
you know, attitude. Yeah, in anger. it's so good. And in, in, in anger. Well, and it's a band that's been on the road basically for three fucking years and played 450 shows and knows that they are bad motherfuckers at this yeah. point, you know, but doesn't need to tell you. They tell you through the action, through the songs, and they're 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 become good enough to not play when they're when they're not supposed to. You know, it's just these songs are just so different from Southern Harmony. And I'm not shitting on Southern Harmony. I fucking adore Southern Harmony. But there is a song on Southern Harmony that sounds like Curse Diamond. Are you guys surprised that this didn't get released? It it may have been, but didn't get released as a single because in those days there was a formula. The big rocker. uh, Some some people went a second rocker, but within the first three, you had to go get the girls. And I I have to admit, I. I, you guys probably know this. I'm not good about this sort of thing, but I don't even know they released the singles for this album. I don't know. So, a conspiracy, conspiracy hot blues and wiser time, and then wiser. Yeah, yeah. I would have thought that this would have been a, a good, a good single to, to release. Yeah, yeah. But what kind of girl are you picking up with this tune? In those days, it did not matter lyrically as long as it was like a slow song. Was it Motley Crue had a song called "You're All I Need," and I, I remember that being played at my prime. It's about a guy slitting his ex-girlfriend's throat you know is one of those as long as it was slow and and had some soulful singing on it to hell with the lyrics you know (laughs) yeah i think it's worth noting too about curse diamond if you if you seek out some of the uh bootlegs and demos you know through tall and and through the whole process this starts out a lot faster on an acoustic guitar and and it kind of morphs into what it is later and it's interesting to see the evolution of that because i feel like the tempo on this song is so important to its success and the fact that it starts out a lot faster in the earlier versions you hear which i believe actually the first version is just an instrumental version rich playing an acoustic and i I really think that's a fascinating thing to see that's why i like demos and, and bootleg things like that because you get to see the evolution absolutely yeah well, and really, also, really, the tall sessions were the most expensive demo for a Morica, yeah. you know? Also, I, I feel like this is a really underrated opener live. This is a, an unbelievably good opener. I mm-hmm. know that when Seth joined the Amoricans and we had a, a big show with him, and it packed shitload of people there. Like, we thought a lot about what we were going to open with, and we decided on this because it was so fucking serious. You yeah. saddled Seth with this on his first gig. What an asshole. You know? <laughs> Seth, Seth absolutely destroys this tune. Destroys Every tune. This. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And that brings us to another fan favorite and a personal favorite of mine. It's nonfiction.
I think nonfiction, you know, we talk about the, the darkness of the lyrics thus far. I think this is this really gets into like a, a dark place. You know, clouds conspire above my head. I overheard them say I wish he was dead. Like that's that's some that's someone that's in a in a in an odd place. And it's I think it's very, very brave of Chris Robinson to uh to put that out there. That's really he's uh, throughout the whole record, but you know, especially certain specific moments, this being one of them, really puts his 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 inner self out there. And I think that's very, very bold thing to do for for an artist. Just another absolute touch, you know, touchstone, great lyric from Mr. Robinson. If we had a child, I'd like a son and not a daughter. Yeah. Because she'd be just like you. And that will not do. So nasty. For me, this is my favorite song on the record. Shockingly, it's because the bass groove is undeniable here. Johnny Colt, uh, this is maybe Johnny's zenith in my mind. Next time you listen to it, really, really concentrate on what Johnny's doing here. He carries this entire song. He really does. It's so fucking good. There's seven different riffs in this. They're all a little different. They're they're kind of uh, a variant of the same thing. But it drives the song's emotion and connects with the lyrics. I love this tune. Chris is so confessional on this record. And that that solo, the solo between Gorman, Mark, and Johnny... The, what's going on there uh, is just, it's understated because Mark isn't isn't opened up, up with these big power chords, but it's so badass. And then comes right back into that, that nice little bass groove. I just think this tune is so fucking good. So, so, so good. Nasty. I always liked the, ir- the ironic twist that, you know, the lyric, there ain't no other language I know how to speak. And then High Head Blues ends with, Esta Eslan Mejor Mota. I always, I always <laughs> laughed at at that to myself. Uh, I would probably agree that this is my favorite song on the album. Not to, uh, to sound very unoriginal. Wiser Time is just, I don't know. That's that that maybe for me is like maybe like a class all its own. But this is this is this is a favorite of mine. This was written definitely before Tall, from, from what I understand. Famously or infamously played on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> Well, before the album came out, this is one of those songs that, that that certain bands have that when they play it live, almost always get to jam. And there were some really long jams on this and Chris just kind of riffing a little bit. Sonically, it's the most mellow song on the album and it just really goes to show what a lyricist Chris is. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that because I don't think some people listen to the lyrics closely enough. Obviously, he's one of the most i don't know not most he's one of the greatest singers i've ever heard is is, that just spews emotion out of himself and he can go from very subdued to you know as susan tedeschi said one of the most soulful singers she's ever heard but his lyrics especially on this album to me are a lot more personal and the way that he sings these lyrics that are so personal it, it, it just conveys it to you and the version on tall a little bit different than this one it's a beloved song in the catalog it's one of the ones that you're never going to hear anybody really have anything bad to say about but the lyrics on it are great i mean i keep going back on that the lyrics on this album are just off the charts yeah i totally agree to your point on that that jam though uh live that it's the one that the, the never very far away jam it's the one that I don't like because it's so like deconstructionist at the end. 
never seems to end. And every time they start, it was like, okay, time to take a piss right here. Uh, cause it was going to go on for 10 minutes and it wasn't, it, ne- it was one of those ones that like, it never went anywhere, at least for me. I don't know. Maybe other people love that jam, but it's so like antithetical to what the tune is. Cause the tune's always going somewhere, either lyrically or harmonically or what's going on rhythmically underneath the song. I think it's such an interesting song and such a boring jam. It's, it's kind of crazy for me. I'd be interested to know how the band creates the jams because like they do jam on these songs but if you hear over the course of different shows they basically have the same framework so yes i'm always interested to know how they work out those ahead of time you know what i mean and, and what they choose to stick with and I, I wonder how organic it is you know well it's it's a tag on this particular one's a tag on the end of the chorus if you listen to the end of that chorus it's the last two notes and they Mm. tag those two notes throughout that jam and it's hard to jam off of two notes unless it's you know you better i don't know it just doesn't go anywhere for me i don't know rick do you feel the same way you're the other musician here not i guess not quite i i like the jam um but that could be clouded by or informed by how much I just love the overall song. Ian, were you talking about deciding on on how to jam? Were you talking about studio versions in general or live versions in general? I'm kind of more saying like when they get to the live setting and okay, they start yeah. to flesh that's, these things out, how do they arrive where they, you know, the thing that they then kind of use over and over again is the basic framework. And it's just always very, I've always been very interested to know that because it's a, uh, it's a skill. It's a skill I don't have, so it fascinates me. Well, it's around what you're talking about, though. It's a motif, right? There's a there's a musical motif going on, and whatever that statement is, they jam around that statement. You know, the Black Moon jam has, you know, this three different ones, but it's all around that 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 G motif. You know, wow, that kind of thing, and then they return to that over and over and each of them might branch out in their own separate way but the basic idea for all most jams it's based off one idea that they take out as far as they can take it out that brings us to uh a track that i'm not going to keep secret it happens to be uh, my favorite on the record and that is she gave good sunflower
to me this is this is the first showcase of ed up you know up front and i really think his playing makes this track but i i love what they're doing as a collective on this song everybody has a shot on this one everybody has something special in this song and i think the way that it ends is 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 fantastic because this is one of those songs and nonfiction is kind of the same way and a lot of the songs are the same way they they kind of juxtapose these really bright spots with these really dark spots and it's 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 an amazing thing to be able to do within the framework of a you know four or five minute song to be able to straddle both of those kind of emotional ranges and i i I think that here this is kind of a very good example that i don't know rick what do you think of this one Uh, i think it's a great song i hadn't thought about it the way that you just kind of just kind of laid it out but i i agree with you after hearing you say that I never loved the title of this song, I'll be honest with you, but I love the song. It does sound like a euphemism for something, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've often, and I, and I tried to think about it. And I, I if, if, if there is one, then I, I'm, it's missed, I've missed it all these years. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I never quite could put my finger on what that meant. I don't know. But I yeah. kind of like things like that. There's a, there's an air of mystery about them, you know? Yeah. I think maybe this is the most underrated song in the catalog. I agree. I think what you're missing here, personally, is, uh, I I don't know how you can get to this tune. Uh, Ed's piano is great, but he really, uh, he does a lot of harmonic work underneath everything, the rest of the song, outside of the the beginning part of it. Johnny's bass line throughout, Johnny is killing this song. Killing, killing, killing. I can't get away from the bass line. He has a huge bass move in the beginning, and then, that that groove is just dynamite his bass line in this is absolutely fantastic uh it moves the entire tune for me i love the line and i know a bunch of people love this line be the sun that burst through my clouds mm-hmm. you know i know a bunch of people that love that mark's solo this is one of mark's more underrated solos it's as good as the pawn shop solo it's as good as the 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 salvation solo you know i know that's the most iconic one or or the morning song solo this is a a, a fantastic solo this the end jam here both of the jams is exactly what we were talking about earlier it's one musical idea they just roll that solo over that 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 motif a bunch and god mark is just stepping on it in at the end of this the whole band is but mark is really stepping on it but i uh i think it's like two different tunes you have the 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 really fantastic bass line and then the crazy guitar work at the end while they're underneath it you know well mark has a, a very definite skill for being able to sustain notes it's the thing that he really does well and here is 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 kind of what he's doing during the solo and i just i i, I think it's fantastic this this entire record is some of Mark's best playing. Mark is really great at not playing when it's not needed. Yes. In this song, you really hear that. Yeah, it's the it's the David Gilmore approach. Less because more. It, it makes it makes all it makes all the time that there is playing infinitely better. Yeah. His solo explodes out of this thing because he steps on that wah pedal and bends the note in, you know, kind of, and it's, it's delish because the rest of that tune is really the rhythm section, just driving the bus on that, on that, that beautiful groove throughout the verses. 
the wah in general, Mark's wah in general on this album uh, is, is like a, it should have its own separate credit. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 ne- the, ne- the next song is another example of that, but it just just in general, the, the wah, his use of wah in this album is great. Um, when I was fortunate enough to work with him on our last album, um, I had some conversations with him. You know, they went something like, you don't need me to tell you anything, but a little wah on this on these lead parts would be nice. <laughs> <laughs> Just a, a friendly suggestion. You know? <laughs> I often wonder if if Mark is cognizant of how w- wonderful a player he is. You know, I mean, I guess you have to be. He's so underrated as a guitar player uh, in, in terms of the the conversations you hear about guitar players as far as the pantheon of greater yes. guitar players yes yes he he is unfairly not categorized with some people that he should be in the same you know league as and he right. he, he often gets left out of the conversation except for those who recognize it and of then course. he's at the pinnacle you know yes i that, that's a good question um i often think about like what you just said um rich had a recent article out about uh, I think it was like the 15 guitar guitar players who most influenced him. And, and throughout the whole thing, you're reading it. And I'm like, yeah, well, everything you're saying here is exactly why you, you two guys are so, uh, you know, instrumental and influential because of what you do and how you do it. You know, and, and one thing that we hear on this album brilliantly in, in a lot of spots is you know the rhythmic guitar playing of of rich rich is one of the most underrated guitar players of all time in terms and, of his rhythm playing his riff and the percussive aspect of it like yes he, that, that percussive aspect of it is just i i personally for me that i love playing that way and i and he does it you know at a whole nother level obviously but Rick, on this record, it feels like like he's got a lot of Lindsey Buckingham in him, you know. Um, he just there's so many arpeggiations and so many like everything harmonically underneath that that really builds the whole song. Mm-hmm. That isn't like take a look at me in a riff sense. It's not this isn't a riff Robinson record. No, know? no. I, I think I think I, I would uh, I think also again getting back to the mixing has something to do with that. As far as Ford, uh, think about what you guys, what I asked you to ask him about that sustained note in my morning song. You know, I don't know. I stomped the volume pedal. (laughs) You know, it's not, I mean, that's a very specific note that everybody loves. And, you know, he's like, I don't don't know. I just play it. But I think that's what it boils down to for Mark. I think he's just, yeah. At home with his guitar, and that's how you know where where he's you know. It's like breathing like, for us. Exactly, he's he's more of a soft spoken kind of guy for the most part, but he I feel like he speaks volumes through his instrument. Well, yeah. agreed. And what I'm getting at, I'm not making fun of him. What I'm saying is, is he's not a, a self promoter. He's not mm. a shame. He's not Richie Blackmore. You oh know? God! And as much you... as we've talked about how much I love Richie Blackmore, but he can't wait to tell you who the greatest guitarist on earth is. It's him. Yeah. You know. Mark Ford is never going to say anything like that. He just isn't, you know. Dwayne Allman never went out of his way to say, I'm the fucking man. No, no. It was like Dickie's quite the, the opposite. player in the band, you Qu- know. Quite, yeah, quite the opposite. Yeah, I think you have the same thing here. Dickie's, Dickie's the good the, one. 
Dickie's the guitar player in the band. Yeah. I just happen to be famous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, now we've left we've left poor David out of this one, really. Uh, David, what do you what do you think of this tune? One of my favorite songs by them. It's it and soul singing. I think are the two happiest in love songs in their catalog. I, even if you don't even listen to the lyrics, just the way it's delivered with the music. This is a happy tune. This is about Lala, and and obviously they were dating at this time. And it it just I don't know. It just sounds like somebody that's head over their heels in love and is trying to express it. But what is that that he's that Ed's playing in the beginning? Since I'm not is that like a, a Hammond B three that he's playing on this? I thought it's it was more electric, electric piano. piano. It's, it's electric okay. piano because it has a little bit almost of a distortion to mm. it that I think just adds a little bit of authenticity to it, but. Mark is playing at the end and with Ed's playing, this is a Mark and Ed song. And, you know, we talked to, we talked to Elijah Ford. I think he said this was, didn't he say this was his favorite Mark Ford uh, song by the Crows? I, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. So it never got played live enough. In my opinion, like this one should have been playing anytime they were really feeling it because it's just a fun song and it's a fun song on the dark record. Um, I really think you got to include Johnny in this, man. Okay. When you say it's when you say it's a Mark and, and Ed tune, Johnny's more important in this tune than Ed is. I know everybody's ear isn't drawn to the bass. I understand that, but in this tune, I think it's as good as Mark. And Mark is fucking awesome in this tune. Don't get me wrong, but like Johnny's integral in this song. This is maybe his best bass lines. One of them. Thorn in my pride in this are the two I think of immediately, and and the last one we talked about. So good. Now that brings us to a track that I find to be a very divisive track amongst the fan base, and that is P25 London. I feel that this song is very noteworthy because this is the first and perhaps the only time Mark takes any sort of a lead vocal where he kind of, he under underneath, he kind of repeats that if I don't say nothing line and uh, which became another one of those things, like I mentioned earlier that you kind of wait for in concert. You know, if the song's coming, you know, that's a, a piece of it that's coming. It became one of those little ear candy kind of things. I happen to like this song mostly because of the uh, guitar work that Mark is doing on it. That's really, you know, this is a, a place where Mark's Mark, wah on this is fucking awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a prime example of what you, what I was talking about before when you 
go back and listen to the tall version, you, you just hear it's it, it's entirely different, mm. entirely meaner. I mean, he gets he gets some tone out of this wah in this song that, you know, you guys are going to think I'm wah crazy, but which I am. But it's just <laughs> great. I mean, it, you know, he's got he's like that. He's got like the trombone thing going. It's just it's just amazing. Yeah, this is a great tune. And uh, I agree. You know, I think the lyric too. There's a hornet's nest in my head. Come and save me. I like. I just think mm-hmm. it's Chris has this this real ability to say very personal things in a very abstract way. If that makes any sense, and I think that's that's what's great about him lyrically, and it kind of is a pinnacle here on this record. Ian, you said this was divisive. That I take it that some fans don't like this song. Over the over the years, I've heard a lot of people say that this is their least favorite track on the okay. record. They don't like it. Yes, there's a uh, there's a man on this program tonight that's not a huge fan of this tune. Steve, why don't you give us the uh, the other the the other side of this? I think this tune sucks. I mean, you don't, don't have like to be so blunt tune. about it, but uh, I, I do. I don't <laughs> like this tune at all. I, I it bums me out. I I think it's really. I just uh, it's just I don't it, I hate the melody. I think that. Yeah, I don't like this song. Not a fan. Well, well you don't. It's pull my least seat. favorite on the album, but um, there's there's parts to it that I just I look forward to listening to. But let me put it to this way: it I certainly don't skip it. I think that actually is an interesting thing that you just said. You know, it's my least favorite on the album, and that is almost not even a slight against the track because this is an album filled with such great songs, you know, to yeah. me, at least on this album is still, you know, better than some other bands best, you know, I like this song a whole lot better live. And I can understand why they probably enjoy playing this one. It's very funky. Uh, it's completely different from a lot of other stuff in the catalog, but I'm about to make Steve Gleason really happy. How does this make it on the album over tied up and swallowed? Okay. I was saving that for downtown money waster. But, <laughs> well, um, the re- the reason I'm saying that is because or Sonic Waltz, so- yeah, sonically, Thunderstorm fucking six fifty four. Yeah, or- yeah, I was listening to that again like three times today. That, is it the original that, title, Steve? Yeah, Thunderstorm that, but, fucking six fifty four. Or 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 exit or a, a whole bunch of tunes. Like it's impossible to me that this this piece of shit. And uh, David, they didn't enjoy playing this. If you look after the Amorcator, by the way, it's got maybe five plays after that in 25 years. They didn't play this song a lot. They hardly ever played it. I saw Magpie play it and they just, they ripped it, man. And that's, that's when, that's when it Mm -hmm. stuck out to me, just what a heavy groove it has. I mean, because I was like, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that one. But man, tied up and swallowed, that's, that's a dark song, you know. It, oh, it would, yeah. I adore it that would, song. It would for sure, you know, fit on here. But see, how, let's see how close our guests listen to our podcast. Where did the title come from? I've I, I've often wondered that, so I, I've missed that. I didn't hear that on a, on a podcast. So it was a luggage tag on a piece of Rich's uh, luggage that he sent through the airport. But it was on there. I'm telling you, when when I heard this song live with Magpie. It opened my eyes up more to it. Now, does it still deserve to be on there over tied up and swallowed? No. Well, look, I'm not I'm not saying you're wrong. I just taste is taste. I think people should like whatever they like. If you're talking about function, that's a different story. I just for me, I don't like this song. It just doesn't do it for me. 
for whatever reason. I don't know, man. I should like Steely Dan, but I don't. I, it's one right. of those things. Ballad and urgency. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, we can't, we, Steve, we can't be friends anymore if you don't like Steely Dan. No, I mean, I, I kind of like them, but you know what I mean. <laughs> All right. Well, Rick is bringing us to a very good point. This is the the next two tracks to me always go hand in hand, and I love to have them together. They do. They can survive separately, and we'll talk about them separately. We are the champions, and we will rock you. Exactly. Yes, I, I almost said that. I I, I almost said it. Living, loving, made, and heartbreaker. Yeah. Exactly. They uh, they they just belong together. The first of which is, of course, ballad and urgency. something along the lines of Ballad and Urgency is so much more than the song that leads into Wiser Time. It, it's such it's such a, a, a great song. It stands on its own. I, I think now, of course, we all can't hear it without waiting for that gem that's about to follow it, Wiser Time, particularly live. This song is a high point on the album for me. I think that this song, to a point you just made, sometimes it is unfairly categorized as the song that's right before Wiser Time, because yeah. Wiser Time is such an epic. But right. there, the way that Ballad and Urgency sets the stage for then seeking into Wiser Time, it, it, that's what makes the effect of Wiser Time that much more powerful to me. So that that's why I always feel like they really belong together. Well, I put them down every other tune I had, like, tune and then something written this i wrote ballad slash wiser so i see them as the same when mark first rejoined in 05 like this was kind of the tune i wanted first because nobody did it correctly and they stopped doing it they really stopped doing it Mm. for a long time uh they never seemed to be able to find it without him and i feel like this is one of those tune that just it has soul ripping out of it i really feel like like gorman and johnny weave it in this song you know, I love Mark's little pull-off bird call kind of runs throughout this song. They just scream emotion, right? A sad lost anthem. I love the builds. I think that the solo's fucking outstanding. The rhythm part underneath the solo that Johnny and Rich are playing is is just amazing, delish. So many good good parts there. Johnny's killing there. And I I I love the outro and I I I've played the interlude myself so many times that little movement with Eddie and and Johnny through the E and the D uh this is my favorite jam that they do I think I I love this tune I love Ballad and Urgency I like it more than Wiser Time 
I, it's one of my favorites on this. I would take that. I, I liked it when they did Wiser Ballad actually live. That, that, yes, that is a rarity, but uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I got to see it at Great Woods once. And uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Ballad and Urgency. What a mature. I keep using the word mature, but like it's a band that was so young and they just wrote these crazy mature ballads. This is another one that would fit wonderful on, on Idle Wild South for me. David, what do you think? I have such a hard time, like you separating the two songs to me. It's almost like, like a suite, you know. You got this part of this song, and then you're gonna you're gonna go to, to this one. Nobody's writing music like this at this time, and that is what so frustrates me about the common music person. Because I heard somebody the other day they didn't know I had a Black Crows podcast, and they're like, "Oh, the Black Crows are one of my favorite bands," and. uh like you know, but they didn't put anything good out after Southern Harmony. Then you're not a Black Crows fan, and you're, you're not listening, and, and you haven't listened to anything. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not that you're not even not a fan; it's that you haven't fucking listened to anything. And so, at this time, you're still having, you know, the '90s is my favorite period of music. I know a lot of people don't agree with that, but you have, you still have grunge in there. You have Hootie and the Blowfish on the radio at the same time. You have the yeah. emergence of you know the the female pop people and they're not writing stuff that sounds like this and these guys come in they're still in their what mid 20s mid to yeah. late 20s and i've always given chris so much credit for this he never went for the easy lyric when it came to ballads they never went for the cheap thing they never went for the oh baby i love you i've got to have you in my life they're they're even like going back to sister luck a very mature song for that time and just putting out such good music that sounded unlike anybody else. I mean, this has a little bit of everything in it, but definitely I consider it part of wiser time. I'm like Ian has said for the longest time, the opening that we think of to wiser time, is really the end of ballad. And I, right. I, I didn't, I never could separate the two. I'll do that interlude is, is almost, it's, it, that's its own piece of music. You know, I have a, a buddy who who needs help finding songs, and he's like, "Oh, I've fallen in love with Wiser Time." I'm like, well, you really need to hear "Ballad and Urgency" in front of that. Mm. And I think, you know, like Rick said, they're not listening. I think that a lot of these songs, you need an attention span to listen to. You know, they're not like these aren't one, four, five hook, you know, kind of songs for people. Like, you need to digest these and really big songs with huge ideas and and it's complicated you know and they're they're wonderful but this is why you can go back to them for years and years and years and find new things in them you know these aren't ever going to be taylor swift fucking pop ballad you know it's just not and as david said you had the grunge era mm. right and you had basically the end of rock and roll and these are these are like really well put together rock and roll ballads and who's listening for that anymore? You have the the rise of Metallica, the rise of new metal, and and the grunge era. You know, it's just where does this fit in? They don't have a spot for that. Doesn't that make you feel more special about it, though? In a way, I always like records like that that are maybe a little more challenging, and uh, you know, don't have the the mass appeal necessarily. I but I feel like ultimately, after you commit the time to them, they're that much more rewarding. Agreed. I mean, if we're gonna talk STP, like give me tiny music. Mm. Yeah, 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 you know, yeah, yeah. Give me tiny music. It's the most. It's, it's their best record, but yep. 
It's the one that, you know, people are going to say purple <laughs> all, yeah. all day long. They just are. No, and it's good they enough. lost a bunch of fans then. You know, it's the same idea. But the people that like this record really like it. This mm-hmm. is, you know, this is their lady picture show or whatever, you know. Exactly. And that brings us to perhaps one of the best known songs in the catalog. Definitely one that's been played live, probably up there in the in the, in the top five number of times of, of, of any song in their catalog. And that is Wiser Time. Every time Wiser Time is played live, the second that Rich hits that first note, the hair stand up on my arm. Every time. This is a, this is such a special song to me. Such a great song lyrically about being on the road. The harmony vocals between Chris and Rich on this are outstanding. What one of the best harmonies I've ever heard in my life and and of the hundreds of thousands of records I've listened to over the course of my life. I just think that this is the peak of Chris and Rich's songwriting, their performance. This is this is just a uh you know, a, a legendary tune. Every time I hear this song after not hearing it for a while, I just have to do a double take. Mm. And like, what? I mean, some of the best songwriting I've ever heard. Rich, this is the first time we really hear him harmonize in this fashion where he takes a little bit more of a prominent role in that. Their singing on those verses is some of the best I've ever heard in my life. His backing vocals on this are as much a part of this song as anybody else's instrument in the band. It helps to set the tone of the song. It gives it to me a little bit more of a personal touch. It helps you to to feel the lyrics more. And then Mark's playing on this adds so much. And then obviously Chris just destroys it with the vocals on it. I think it's the best song they've ever written. It's top three or four song for me, period live we they jam it out and and we all love that but i don't know if we're i don't know if they're ever going to be able to to top this especially from a vocal performance top five song of all time for me one of the most just amazingly beautiful songs ever ever recorded 
Bruce Cathan's pedal steel in the in the in the studio is just unbelievable, and it, I I can't I can't not have an almost out of body experience every time I hear this this song. And when I've seen it live, it was just like I was might as well have been on Mars. It's 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 one of those one of those songs, and it will forever be the prime example of the Black Crows for me is this song this is this encapsulates what Period. they're all about to me you know uh, this thorn in my pride in my morning song yeah i can't put this ahead of, of of those other two i'm not sure that said it's in the pantheon i would say this though when you watch them play live it's not the same song without mark no you need mark I, I and you need that telly you just do it's not the same without him it just isn't you know if you have mark and rich when you see them live, there's something about this song that that's like so, you know, Dwayne and Dickie or, you know, it's just it's their. Yeah, I want to say it's their whipping post, but it isn't, you know, but it's got that that sort of quality. Those those dual leads. I mean, who else does the guitar tapestry thing like this? The way those leads interplay with each other is so it's one of those songs that that just screams chemistry in a way that other songs do not. Is this the greatest road song ever written? It's up there. With, it's up there with uh, Moonlight Mile for me. I've, I've often, I've often thought about this. Mm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I teach a, a myth class, and the entire class is about the road, and I play them this song. The thing that is to me is really a testament to the strength of this song and how important it is to the fan base is and i i feel it's very unfair to the gentleman in question but there's a reason why people don't like the way adam mcdougall plays his solo section on on these on the keys because ed's oh, my, is so my, essential my, to the song my my hand is way up i'm sorry but i i, I don't even want to i'm not even going to go in and comment about about that but the, the the original material and the way that ed played it is so key to the song i think it's really jarring for people to hear it in the in the way that adam approached it and i understand why adam approached it the way he did because he was trying to put his own stamp on it i and, don't yeah i i mean i appreciate it i appreciate anybody that tries to do something like that i don't necessarily think it worked every time there were times where i i, it I saw work, it live say again it did it did it, it, it didn't did work. work well i'm sorry as a, as, as a guy who was in a tribute to these guys i can say this very clearly that there are certain iconic things that you, and I took plenty of liberties, that you have to play. Mm -hmm. I can't not play the Thorn of My Pride bass line. Boom. That has to come out. That that Eddie piano there has to be there. It has to be there. And right. to screw with that is like screwing with the gospel piano at the uh, in my morning song. Like, you can't do that. You just can't do that. It's a really, it's a, it's not the right thing to do. Well, that was like when we spoke to Matt Slocum. Oh, yeah. His approach to the way he handled the keys on Black Crow songs was perfect because he did just enough of his own stuff when it was appropriate, but he knew what marks he had to hit. What did Rich tell him? What? Rich told him a very specific thing. Rich told him, you have to play the wiser time solo as it's written. He told and him that specifically. Yeah, but as I'm saying, there's a reason for that, you know. And that's that's yeah, right. That's the, that's the strength of this song. Play the iconic stuff the way it's supposed to go. He told me he had to learn uh, descending note for note. Learn the stuff note for note that needs to be correct, you know. And this is one of those things that needs to be correct. And we should have mentioned it. This is 100 percent true. And now 
Uh, this is a moment I've been looking forward to because I'm going to take the leash off Mr. Gleason and let him discuss Downtown Money Waster. frivolous bullshit song it's fine there's nothing wrong with it but how you leave <laughs> off tied up and swallowed here or exit or or thunderstorm is beyond me it's fucking beyond me tied up and swallowed is a masterpiece song and would fit like a glove right here and it would fit into the vibe of amorica perfectly think about the the version that's on that tall record it's so slinky and nasty and and slow moving but but just oh it's it's wonderful and instead we got the too many late nights and you don't go to heaven bullshit like i distinctly remember reading an article in rolling stone prior to the release of amorica and you know it's it was an in the studio kind of interview done while they were recording the record and they mentioned in that article tied up and swallowed so i think at one point it was intended to be on the record yeah well what producer I don't know who who makes that call. I happen to like Downtown Money Waster. I prefer the electric version much more so um, because Steve really lays down a nice groove on that. But I I, I do like Downtown Money Waster. I agree a hundred percent that uh, Tide of the Swallow would have been a uh, much more welcome addition to the record. How about Exit? I don't think that they re-recorded Tide Up Tide Up and Swallow. I, I, for the record, I, I like Downtown Money Waster. I, I for for this album, I think it's a it's a I'll use the expression. It's a fun song. Mm. You know, it's certainly not a, not a dark song. I guess I don't, I I go back and I think about this album, the way that it came out. And I still think about it as I heard it that first time. And I didn't have knowledge of these other admittedly. and, and, And I agree, great songs that could have been on this album, but you know, they weren't. So the uh, so the songs that they did put on the album, I, I like Downtown Money Money Waster. David, what do you think? I'm in agreement with Ian. That electric version smokes, but I don't think it fits on the album. First of all, like it's a primarily acoustic. It's you know got like a a bluesy stompy feel to it. And Steve, I'm not trying to get you riled up, but to me, this is their version of Meeting Across the River from Born to Run. It's what in my opinion, prevents this from being a perfect album. And you cannot deny the fact that it's on the album. Um, I bet this is fun for them to play because it's stylistically, it's completely different from everything else. And I also think this is about Lala. The song is, but that version that they do on the two meter sessions over in like the Netherlands is awesome. It's amazing. 
absolutely amazing. If they would have put that version on here, I would think of it a lot differently. But, you know, there's also a band that left Peace Anyway and Grows a Rose off by your side. Two amazing, amazing songs. So uh, while I'd like to have heard Tied Up and Swallowed here, um, that's one of my favorite Black Crow songs. And I think it, I think it would fit on here. And, oh, it and, would, without a yeah. doubt. Without, yeah. There's no question, in my opinion. Steve, do you like this song better? Do you like this song live? Because I, I think this is a song that, I think it's a nice, raucous song live. I I like this song live. Yeah, it's okay. I think it's kind of droney and doesn't, I don't think it goes anywhere. But Where does it go from there? To me, it's a great, it's a great campfire song, though. Like this would be fun if you're sitting around, you know, a, just, a campfire and Rich, Rich and Chris are, you know, feeling like doing a little ditty. Just for me, functionally, like it needs a bridge. Like I, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of it, and like it's like what Ron Wood had to say about these guys. He's like the Black Crows. That band throws away more good tunes than most bands have, and it's like yeah, like here, you know. See, I always like, saw it as more of a like a palate cleanser kind of thing. Like you're coming off ballad and wiser you have this little interlude that's kind of loose and, and fun and, and and not really anything anything too you know too much to write home about but then because you're then going into an album closer that honestly uh you know we talk about great openers this is probably one of the greatest closing songs of a record yeah. i've ever heard as well yeah i i would have put tied up and swallowed second right after gone let's wander into descending like descending i don't love descending like i think my three other panelists are gonna say they love descending i like descending it's it's not my favorite it's not my favorite track i can i can appreciate that there's a reason for me why i like descending so much because i mean i always like the song i think it's a great showcase for ed's playing Mm-hmm. Anytime you're going to point to an example of how mm-hmm. good a player Ed is, this is one that you point to. But I can distinctly remember seeing the Magpie Salute. First night they ever performed, they do the entire Ed tribute beforehand. Yeah, and then I was they, there. 
they blast into descending and i that's one of the few times in concert i i got tears in my eyes you know yeah. and didn't even realize it that's that speaks to the power of of this song to me because it was able to do that to me i realized it was also under the guise of a tribute to ed and that's a very sad thing but it's that to me always that's what solidified descending uh my opinion of descending that much more so because i just feel it's such a powerful song and lyrically i think it's a fantastic song too steve where are you at with this one yeah i'm I'm kind of on the opposite uh spectrum from rick that said i i really uh admire him saying this is not my favorite because most people absolutely adore this song yeah. and i think it's hard to have opinions that people don't uh jive with and uh well, I mean, you I do, applaud, but you don't give a shit. I so. applaud you for not liking this song. Anyways, uh, I love this song. I, I think it's, it's, I like uh, it. I don't love it. Oh, I get it. I get it. But you don't fall in line with the general consensus on it, which, by no. the way, isn't it nice to to be able to have a dissenting opinion? Thorn uh, Pawn Shop in this form kind of a, a trilogy uh, for me. Uh, the same kind of style of tune. This is this is the kind of song for me that only the most legit of bands can put together because this could be very um you know cliche if it's done incorrectly but uh it's obviously eddie driven but chris is so good on this and like if you've ever tried to i don't know if you ever played this rec- or played a band that, that played this no i never it played. comes in in a very the vocal comes in in a very tricky spot it comes in like the two and a half it's but it's uh it's such a soulful tune, uh, and it's not really an easy song to sing. I think Rich lays such a beautiful harmonic backdrop, uh, all these arpeggiations here for the piano. And, you know, you can't talk about this tune without talking about the outro. You just can't. And it's just a beautiful way to to end that record. It's just such a beautiful piece of music at the end. And I think, you know, versus they end Southern harmony with a cover that a lot of people think is frivolous to a certain extent, you know, that it should have been a song here. They don't do that. They end it with this like incredibly beautiful, uh, just beautiful piece of, of music uh, written by Ed. And it's, this is remember this is a guitar band, but that's not what this, for me, that's not what this record sounds like, you know, it just doesn't. And it's, it's really significant of that for me this this song plus i just think the lyrics are beautiful i mean i i don't know what else you can really say about this i i think it's one of the most beautiful moving to me pieces of music i've ever heard i don't know if people remember it was only like our fifth or sixth episode my best friend growing up that was a musician died of a drug overdose when we were recording probably our third or fourth episode and uh when my sister called and told me just instinctively i put this song on subject matter and then the reverence that Ed and, and my friend, my friend Eddie was couldn't read any music and could play like 10 or 12 instruments, just brilliant. And to hear the emotion that Chris puts in this, I, you know, we're all different. We all have different things in music that mean one thing to us or another. But in concert, when he sings Have Mercy Baby and they have the, like his voice, it's mm-hmm. a little bit of an echo to it, gives me chills every time I hear it. And that the coda outro, whatever you want to call this, I put it up there with Layla uh, as far yeah, exactly. as like how moving it is. 
And one of my favorite pieces of, of Black Crow's video on YouTube, I can't remember when it was during the reunion era. They really let Ed go off at the end of this. And Chris and Rich are standing there watching him. I feel like the same way we watch him. And if you remember, like they just kind of like clap when it's over. Uh, so much respect for him on this. I, I think this is a probably a, a, a very personal song to Chris one way or the other. The I love the lyrics on it. I am so glad they didn't release the version on Tall. It sounds completely it sounds completely unfinished and it lacks the emotional punch that this one does. I always have respect for bands that close out a, a long album with one of the best songs on it. Cause I feel like in some way it's like you've hung with us through this, you know, here's one of, one of our better songs. This and virtue and vice are my two favorite closing tracks uh, on any of their albums. I, I don't think it got played enough live, to be honest with you for how powerful it is, but that made it that much more special when you got to hear it. It's one of my favorite pieces of music I've ever heard. It just moves me. It makes, makes the hair stand up on my arms and, Kudos to the band for allowing Ed to have that showcase of this, because there is something in his playing that I can I never can quite put a finger on it that just moves me, whether it's a fast song or a slow song. And I just think he had it, whatever it is, he had it. And there's nobody that we've talked to has ever had anything other than respect and love for the guy. I mean, nobody. From no, the universal the universality of utmost reverence. You know, it's yeah. not just respect; it's reverence. From, and that was before he died. Oh yeah, from from all of the guys in the band. I think budget. I've heard more than one of them say he's the best musician they ever played with. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, you could you could drop this guy in any band, and I think he could play with them. I've I've heard two of them say that. Anyway, I I just don't know of a better way to close this album out. It's a it's a heavy album for the most part, saying maybe two songs, but to, to close it out like this, take some guts and uh kind of lead you into the next chapter of their of the band with three snakes with some of the um imagery and lyrics on it. The uh, gentlemen, this has been a, a ton of fun. This is probably the most fun I've had doing one of these under review episodes. Yeah. I and, and I, I thank you both for joining us. Uh, your 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 opinions on every track. Of, Thanks for inviting us. I will point out we've we've you know, Gleason and I've hung out three or four times, and 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 we're good friends, and he's been you know a supporter. But Rick has been a very enthusiastic supporter of us from from day one. Yes. So um, I I I really appreciate that, and I, I would love to find ways to have Rick on more you haven't heard rick's record yeah you listen to the program you should you should absolutely 100 check it out it's you know mark ford's on this record and it's it's exactly the kind of music that all of you would like so do yourself a favor and check out buffalo jr absolutely that's uh the Thanks, name guys. of the record is indigo groove and it's fantastic seek it out definitely all right and because rick is such an esteemed guest of ours and such a great supporter Rick, I'm going to let you pick the playout song this week. What live version of one of these Amorica tunes would you like to hear? Can I cheat and say Sunday Night Buttermilk Waltz? Absolutely can. All right. That's the most Black Crows thing you can do. Have a record release <laughs> party and not play any So, yeah, hey, Ian, like why don't we also throw in, a uh, while we're at it, a version of Tied Up and Swallowed? You got it. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us. Gentlemen, thank you for coming on with us, and we hope to have you back again in the future. And we're going to throw it to our producer, Jason. 
Stay tall, everyone. Stay tall, everyone.